Hello and welcome to Under Common Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. We are the music makers and we are the dreamer of dreams. I'm Ian Woodworth and I'm joined by my co-host James Daly. Today we are going to be starting in on a multi-part series, we don't know exactly how many parts yet, where we're going to be diving into the 5th edition Dungeon Master's Guide picking out bits of the rules that are provided within the DMG that people are always asking about, but never seem to realize that they actually gave us rules for. So we're going to be diving in, figuring out what wizards actually provided us in the DMG, and then talking a little bit about it and how to utilize it, how to modify it. Diving in, looking at the rules, but not knowing how many pieces we're going to have, I'm Pretty sure this is how most golems are formed. <laughs> Almost. but we... I shouldn't have any extra screws left over, right? Well, I mean, you should always end up keeping them in this little box. So that way you'll have them whenever it starts falling apart. And you're like, oh, that's where that screw went. You always keep track of your loose screws. That's how you end up like me and you have mason jars full of various odds and ends of screws and bolts and nuts sitting in your garage. It's not hoarding, it's pragmatic. Remember that, James. That's right. So, like Ian said, we're going through, and really, the Dungeon Master's Guide's got a ton of information. Everyone's really wanting to hop into the game, especially when they're new. And even if you've played for a while, most people get the Player's Handbook, which is fine. And even then, most people kind of skim the Player's Handbook. Very few people actually take time to break it down and read it. And even fewer the Dungeon Master's Guide, because it can be fairly dense. There are a lot of tables. There's a lot of niche stuff in there. But then when you always hit that kind of gap and like, how do I work this? And you try to like homebrew and figure out some rules because you just missed it or you didn't know where it's at. Actually, by and large, it's in there. It might not be covered terribly, terribly well, but it is in the book. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff in here that even I was surprised with because I've had my DMG for probably close to four years now. And I hadn't actually gone and read all of the stuff in the back. The largest extent to which I use my DMG is the index of magic items. That's the bulk of what I use my DMG for, is referencing all the different magic items in the published works. Right, and that's what most people are going to find. They're going to find that and possibly a couple of the other tables, like the loot tables or like some condition effects. Beyond that, I find that the DMG kind of gets neglected a bit. And so, like I said, we're going to come in and kind of start in On some of these basics here, things that kind of get glanced over real fast that might help improve your game as a DM or even as a player kind of give you an idea of what's going on a little bit better, perhaps. And I think part of the reason why I never really did a deep dive into the DMG in 5th edition is because for years I ran 3.5 and I never had a Dungeon Master's Guide for 3.5. Yeah, like I said, the DMG is a critical book, but it does get skipped and a lot of people get the player's handbook and they might get some of the supplemental text and they kind of run with that and that's perfectly acceptable if that's all you can gather together and that's all you get then you know i'm pretty sure wizards and everyone else would rather you play with what you got versus not playing at all because you can't get access to the materials yeah i think that really and truly if you have to pick one of the three core books to go without the dmg is probably the one to go because the player's handbook gives you what you need to make a character and your monster manual gives you what you need to throw at your characters. So between those two, you get 90% of what you need for the game and you can fudge the other 10%. That said, if you can get the Dungeons Master Guide, it's got a trove of information, lots of stuff in there. Absolutely pick it up, round out your library because again, every party needs a Dungeon Master. So we're going to just go ahead and jump right on in. The first thing that we're going to be talking about is social interaction. And we've touched on this a bit in a couple of recent episodes in our non-combat encounters and our downtime activities. And I hope I don't butcher his name. Uh, Z Bashu over at the Animated Spellbook did a wonderful little video talking about the social interaction rules. If you're not familiar with his channel... You need to check them out. The animation is amazing. And it's all short videos. I think the longest ones are like five or six minutes. And he animates all of them and he does all the voices for them. And he's done specific spells. He's done rules out of the DMG. And they're wonderful little things that talk about the nuances of spells and how to use them and how to make the rules work. 
Yeah, he has some great videos. And like you said, they're nice and short. You're in the bathroom, you got kind of a couple minutes to burn. Those are just about the perfect length. So you can kind of sneak them in here and there so they don't take a large investment of time. It's like, I need to know how attacks of opportunity work at the table. Hey guys, take three minutes. I need to watch this video. Absolutely. Pulling up information on the fly is an absolute gold standard for any DM, so that's perfectly acceptable. This segment is not funded by the Animated Spellbook. That said, social interactions are a huge part of the game. Now, the game is very popular for obviously throwing dice on the table. That's what it's known for. That is a huge, huge part of the game. But when you start getting into the actual role play, it's all social interaction. How you're dealing with NPCs, how you're dealing with people within the party, how the party's going to interact with the group, what they plan to do. Are you, you know, the lawful heroes? Or are you a band of murder hobos? Are the people seeing a band of outriders riding in a town and going to flee? Are they throwing you a party because you're liberators? All of this is social interaction. And a lot of this normally gets done on the fly, but Wizards actually has this broken down fairly well. And one of the great things they have in the Dungeons Master Guide is if you hit that writer's block, or if you're like me, you're not terribly imaginative, or your social interactions, social intelligence of irradiated pudding, they have tables, and tables are magic. So before we get too far into this, this is starting on page 244. Open your holy books to page 244 and read along. So say we all. So say we all. So they have it broken down into four steps. The first step is starting attitude, which is the NPC's opinion of you, how they view you. It can be friendly, indifferent, or hostile. A friendly NPC wants to help you, and they are willing to do some small things without any real prodding if it helps you succeed. Once you start introducing a certain amount of risk or a certain amount of sacrifice on the part of that NPC, that's when you need to start making checks. So if it's something as simple as, let's say, you're a paladin and you're a member of an order of paladins, you ride in, you go to your local chapter house, and you're talking to one of the squires out in the yard. If you're just exchanging information, he's going to willingly volunteer all of that information as long as none of it's going to get him into trouble. As soon as you start asking things that are pointed and are going to potentially come back to bite him, that's when you need to start making charisma checks. That's perfect. Kind of think if you come into a town and a person's friendly and you're asking for a couple of copper pieces, maybe, or if you want the name of a person or some basic info, that's the kind of thing that you're probably going to get free and clear. You're not going to have to check anything. If you start, you know, asking where the band of assassins live, that might get a little sketchy, you know, along those lines. If you start asking for like the location of a mob boss or who his henchmen are or something like that, and that's something where that can come back on his family, kind of like what Ian says, then again, they're going to be a little less willing depending on how friendly or if you have any standing reputation you have with them. Or going back to our paladin chapter house, asking if the squire has any dirt on any of the knights, if there's someone that you can go to to circumvent the chain of command, any of those sorts of questions, those would also be things that would require a check because those are things that if they got back to him, he would get in trouble. Another check would be you could ask where the supply cabinet or the quartermaster would be, but he wouldn't steal anything from the supply hall for you. The next stage is indifferent. So an indifferent creature might help or hinder you depending on what their goals are. They don't necessarily have to be standoffish or disinterested in whatever it is that you're doing, but their opinion is going to shift based on what you're wanting. So this is going to be the bulk of your NPCs. If they don't have a vested interest in the specific thing that you're doing, they would fall under the indifferent category. Right. Most of these are going to be your charisma checks unless you're asking like, hey, what's your name? How are you doing? Again, depending on if the DM has written any other kind of personality in with this NPC. To quote the book, indifferent creatures might be polite and genial, surly and irritable, or anything in between. But yeah, so an indifferent individual, that would be your shopkeeps. As long as you're not negatively affecting their business, they don't really care. If you're going to do something that's going to improve their business, they might be a little more towards the friendly side. If you're going to do something that's going to harm their business, they're going to shift a little more towards the hostile side. So a bit of a point to relate to. A friendly character would be like Mr. Rogers. An indifferent character would be more like Mr. Magoo. 
where Mr. Magoo's going to kind of stumble along and do his own thing. And if you're stumbling in the same direction, then great. And if you're in his way, then he's just going to kind of stumble over the top of you. That's pretty much the different. Now, again, you start rolling those charisma checks or you start interacting. And obviously that's going to shift one direction or the other. Yeah, and we're actually going to get to that here in a little bit because that's step two but so finishing up step one the third category is hostile a hostile creature opposes the adventures and their goals but doesn't necessarily attack them on site the example that they give is a condescending noble might wish to see a group of upstart adventurers fail so as to keep them from becoming rivals for the king's attention thwarting them with slander and schemes rather than direct threats and violence So this is where you can get your political intrigue going if you are so inclined. This would be if you're a paladin and you are confronting the pickpocket that you cornered in the street. That would be a hostile NPC. They have no interest in giving up anything to you. And they're going to give you as little as they can get away with so that they can get away. Right. So yeah, like Ian said, this could be a paladin to a pickpocket. Or like if there's a ladder climber within the paladin ranks and he's trying to nose his way up the ranks and he's just kind of doing that. Any kind of conflict with religion, like if your cleric comes in and there's another cleric in the area that's opposed to your god, that could be different things. Different wizards with schools, because Lord knows those wizards can be feisty and it's super, super catty. That's just how they do. So all of these are various options. Another great example, again, coming back to like some pop culture references, but grumpy old man, you could just have a surly old man that just is grumpy and wants everyone to stumble because that's how he gets his jollies. And those can kind of be a fun, kind of a neutral, hostile NPC. They hate everybody for no reason at all. Those are kind of fun to play. And so going back with some of our previous episodes where we've built our towns and our settlements, when you're setting up your village or whatever you have and you're making your NPCs, these are things to consider. And it's really easy to put a note either with like a colored pen or pencil or just a shorthand next to the thing. You know, if you made Bob the NPC, you could put on green friendly and a number or indifferent or however you want to mark it. But you can just use these simply to mark the general interaction of your NPCs without writing a huge backstory. So again, this is a quick way to shorthand your characters without having to deal too much information or spend too much time creating them out. Okay, so now that we've gotten our starting attitude established, next up is going to be step two, the conversation. So this is the interaction between the player characters and the NPCs before any dice are rolled. If you were in drama or improv club in school, this is your time to shine. This is where they're just talking cordially or maybe not so cordially with whoever the NPC is, depending on the situation. And this is where you get a chance to sort of try to suss out anything that could potentially improve your chances of success with the NPC. I'm going to actually take these in the opposite order as they're listed in the book. And I'm going to start with determining characteristics. So whenever you're first encountering an NPC, you get the ability to make an insight check against that NPC for a chance to learn either their personality trait, ideal bond, or flaw. You get to say, I would like to figure out something about this character. DM sets a DC, you make an insight check, and if you succeed, then you are able to pick up one of these things so that you can play into that during your conversation. And it specifically says, if you fail your check by 10 or more points, you get a false result. Which is just good fun. And for DMs, if a player hears our podcast, if they've heard our podcast, you've obviously heard your podcast because we're talking to you now. But if a player rolls up and you haven't figured out your bonds, flaws or whatever for your character, just pull up the player's handbook and a quick roll on the table and you can just present it with just about anything. Just make sure that if you wing it and you decide on something, you'd make a note so that you can keep it consistent from session to session if they run into that NPC again. But yeah, that is something that you can do. You're figuring out something about this particular NPC, trying to figure out an avenue of conversation that will make them more favorable towards you. Because you can actually shift their attitude based on your interactions with them. Whenever you're interacting with them, just the regular conversation before you even roll any dice can shift their attitude from indifferent to friendly, from indifferent to hostile, from hostile to indifferent, from friendly to indifferent. It does say that it typically won't shift more than one position in attitude in a single conversation and that it may be temporary. So they may 
revert back the next time you go and see them. Or it may be permanent. If you do a good enough job with it, it may be a permanent shift. Or a bad enough job, as the case may be. And so that will affect how good your success is going to be whenever you actually get to your charisma checks. Because if you're able to figure out some personality trait of this NPC that you're talking to, and you're able to appeal to that and shift an indifferent NPC to a friendly NPC or a hostile to an indifferent, your potential interactions with that character have suddenly gotten much better. And you now have someone who is much more receptive to helping you, and you'll end up having a much better result off of your charisma check. And again, depending on how you want to interact, there's lots of different things. It could be as simple as how you're dressed or where you interact with the person, depending on if they're like an urchin or a scoundrel or a noble. They could be hoity-toity. They could just hate rich people. They could just like hard workers. I mean, so the spectrum is huge, just like it is in real life. Anytime you can see any information you can get, you can work with that. And again, this is a lot where your role-playing improv really gets to come in. And as a DM, if someone really plays the part well or just does something particularly outstanding, be it clever, be it intuitive, be it funny, I, as a DM, am always willing to give a little bit extra for that extra effort or those moments that kind of shine. So going on into the next step, now that we've had our conversation, we've gotten to our point that we're trying to make and the thing that we're trying to get from this NPC, now it's time for the charisma check. And so depending on how your interaction has gone so far will determine whether a deception, intimidation, or persuasion check would be the most appropriate, and also depending on what exactly you're trying to get from them or what you're trying to get to them. In the case of most deception checks, you're trying to keep something from them rather than get something from them. Says you, you've never done a deception check, right? I fully acknowledge that there are exceptions where you can draw a great amount of information from an NPC with deception checks, but in most cases, persuasion and intimidation are going to get you more information than deception will. Generally, again, deception, because I tend to run more of this character anyway, particularly if you're using a disguise kit or something like that or trying to pass yourself off as somebody else, that's going to be a deception role versus a persuasion role largely. Now, I'm going to argue that a lot of what you're talking about right there is going to be a performance check. It could be that as well. That depends on how the DM asks the player to roll. Once the performance check fails or once you come under greater scrutiny, that's when you have to rely on your deception as opposed to the performance. The performance check is to keep the scrutiny from happening. The deception check is what happens once they start scrutinizing you. I can see that. And again, a lot of my conversations tend to be more devious anyway, and I tend to find that misdirection. I tend to file under deception more than persuasion. But again, that's at my table. That, with the performance checks, that is how I run it at my table. Because you're pretending to be someone, you're playing the role of being someone who you're not. And you have to be convincing enough with your role to really get what you want out of it. And then once you have come under scrutiny because maybe you have missed some detail or maybe you just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time and come face to face with a guard who suddenly sees someone in a guard uniform that he doesn't recognize. Those are the sorts of things that would require a deception check. So the charisma check, they actually provide these wonderful little tables in this section on page 245 for the DCs for friendly, indifferent, and hostile creatures, their reactions to your charisma check. So a friendly creature is going to do what you ask if it doesn't require risk or sacrifice. DC 0, that's their default. That's what they're going to do. A DC 10, they will accept a minor risk or sacrifice to do what you want. So as long as it doesn't greatly inconvenience them, as long as you're not asking for their life savings, you're not putting them in risk of physical harm, or if the risk chance is very minor, you might be able to get them in on that with the DC 10. And then a DC 20 is they will accept significant risk or sacrifice to do what you ask. So again, these are friendly NPCs. They have the same 
end goal as you. You share a common goal, and so they're willing to put in the extra effort to help you achieve your goal because that's also theirs. Right. So a quick reference on this one. For a friendly NPC, you walk up in town, you find a friendly NPC. A zero DC would be they'd tell you where the store is or where the shop is. A DC 10, they might pose as a lookout while you're trying to rob the shop to tell you if the guards are coming. Where a DC 20 is they'll hop in the store and they'll knock out and tie up the shopkeep while you loot the store. Those would be the different type of levels of a DC check. You are just all about knocking up a store, aren't you? Uh, maybe a little bit today. <laughs> a knocking over, I think, is the term could, I'm looking for. If we, you we knock are, up we, the are not, we are not impregnating a convenience store, James. I think that's how you get those little kiosks in the mall. DC zero for an indifferent creature is they'll offer no help, but do no harm. So they let be what will be. They're going to have a, this is none of my business. DC 10 is they will do what you ask as long as it involves no risk or sacrifice. DC 20 is they will accept minor risk or sacrifice to do what you want. Fair enough, though. Honestly, by and large, if you're good or lucky enough to roll a DC 20 check on an indifferent creature, you probably have a better chance of conjoling them to shift them to a friendly creature first. But depending on how the dice play or the table plays, that is a possibility. Well, and that also depends on the skill of the player, because the player may not carry on the conversation long enough or may not be trained in insight and so they're not picking up on what they need to bring up in the conversation to shift their attitude and so they may be able to give this whole big spiel but not necessarily tailor it to the person they're talking to fair enough and then going on to hostile creatures dc zero is they will actively oppose you and they might take risks to do it so if you fail to hit at least a DC 10 against the hostile creature, you're not going to change their opinion of you. They're still going to try and do whatever it is that they're doing to oppose you. Whether it is the scheming and the slander and the misinformation campaign, or whether it's just flat out attacking you. So this is where if diplomacy breaks down between you and that bandit leader, this is where you roll initiative. DC 10 is they offer you no help but do no harm. DC 20 is they do what you ask as long as there's no risk. So a hostile creature at a DC 20 will give you the same thing that a friendly creature will give you without any prompting. The way I kind of see that with a hostile creature, if you hit that DC 20, you're probably like rivaled or honored enemies, that kind of thing, where I'll let you have this one. It's not going to affect me anyway. And I kind of see what you're doing. So that's a rare thing anymore in this world. A lot of people don't hold that concept up too much, but that's one of those ones I like. This would be you running into the pickpocket and cornering him. This is your intimidation check to say, give me what I want or I'll break your kneecaps. And he will give you as little as he can. That's not going to get him in trouble with his boss. If he has a boss. This would be like if you ran into the pickpocket and he's already picked the pocket and you caught him and you rolled that 20. He would probably drop what it was ever in his hand and then just kind of like meld back into the crowd. Again, giving you as little as you can, but minimal risk to him as well. Yeah, there really is not any substantial risk to what he's doing. He's just trying his best to get away with his skin. So according to this structure, you're not going to ever have an issue where your bard rolls a... 24 on their persuasion roll against the bandit leader and suddenly they're best friends. That's not going to happen. No, unless there's some spell casting involved. There would have to be some charm person or suggestion or some other such enchantment magic going on in order for that to happen. They're not going to be able to get that big of a shift on a single charisma check. But again, this also gives you some guide rails because a lot of people do very far and wide with this particular interaction because I have played on tables where the bard has come up to the bandit leader and they've passed one charisma check and suddenly they're best friends. And that's not a terribly believable game. I mean, it works for the table sometimes. This kind of gives you a more organized way to do things. And this is why I really like that in 5th edition, a natural 20 on a skill check is not a critical success is not an automatic success. It's a very good success, but it's not an automatic critical success because it keeps your players from succeeding at impossible tasks. And I'm borrowing a word from Matt Colville here. It lends that little bit of verisimilitude, that appearance of truth 
that relatability to the real world. Because you're not going to be able to just walk in to someone who hates you and just have one really good line and suddenly they're best friends. Yeah, so that whole, you know, Superman, Batman, and oh, our mom has the same name. Yeah, that's not going to fly in this one. That will make them indifferent. That would, that would get them from hostile to indifferent. That would not make them best friends. But the other couple little bits in this section, aiding the check. So if someone else during the conversation part did a really good job of sussing out some way to improve their attitude or is appealing to them in a positive way, you can get advantage on your charisma check. Similarly, if they do really badly, if they insult the person or if they have some big social gaffe or if they misread one of their ideals, you can actually gain disadvantage on that check because, you know, we're social creatures and we like to be flattered and we take offense when we're insulted. And it also says that in certain situations, multiple checks might be required in order to reach your end goal. You may have to convince them in stages to get all the information that you want. And generally speaking, once you fail a charisma check, you're done. And that's the main point of step four, which is repeat. So they're asking, can you repeat your charisma checks? If you fail a charisma check, the conversation is generally going to end. They're usually going to clam up and they're not going to give you anything else. And if you keep pushing it, you can actually decrease their attitude towards you. You can make them shift towards hostile because you're irritating them, because you're annoying them, because you just won't drop it. So, you know, because I like references, another decent example I kind of came up with off the fly is when you get that call and it's telemarketer, so you're floating somewhere between indifferent and hostile already. And at that point, they're rolling those charisma checks. And the longer they can keep you on the line and ask you questions, those are their continual charisma checks. They might be able to get you to buy a magazine subscription. But if they fail just one charisma check, click on the phone. Absolutely. So that just about wraps it up for the social interaction rules in the DMG. We're going to go ahead and shift into something that I found when I was flipping through that I thought was kind of an interesting thing, which was the uh, honor and sanity. They treat them as entirely new ability scores. So you get an extra 11 if you're doing standard spread. You would get an extra plus 3 to your point by pool if you're doing point by. Or you would get to roll an extra 46 drop 1 for an additional stat if you're using one of them and then you would you know double that if you're using both of them and they add an extra element to the game that can depending on the type of game that you're playing really shift the way that you play a lot yeah looking at this i kind of like this honor score and i can almost see wizards in the future taking this honor do like an honorable dishonorable versus a good versus evil almost yeah i could almost see honor dishonor that scale being in place or even just using that as what you're calling your good and evil right because you could easily act with or against your honor score and if you start acting against your honor score maybe you start taking negatives to that or something like that and that's actually exactly how the honor score system works you start off with a value 11 is neutral and then you gain fame as it gets bigger and infamy as it gets smaller so this kind of feels a bit like the statin fallout with the stock charisma karma. it's your karma and charisma that's what it's going for or even if you've played white wolf's vtm vampires you have your humanity stat and that kind of works along those lines as well honor is definitely something that you want to at least consider if you're going to be doing a political intrigue game. Right. If you're running like a Game of Thrones themed type game, Ned would be rocking a 20. Littlefinger would probably be rocking a 1 or a 2. I'd put the Hound probably at a solid 11. Maybe a mm. 12, 13 towards the end. He would start off at like a 7 or an 8. Possibly, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, he had his code. Yeah. And he but, followed it for the most part. But he had the misfortune of an infamous family. And you Granted. know that that would put a dip on that score that really would yeah that would actually be a lot of fun to break down the game of thrones characters via their honor score that'd be a lot of fun that needs to be a meme thing we do one day maybe on instagram or something but what you end up having is an honor score and you would end up making checks on it in much the same way that you would make a charisma check the examples that they give are being unsure of how to act with honor surrendering while trying to save face 
trying to determine another character's honor score, trying to use proper etiquette in a delicate situation, or using your honorable or dishonorable reputation to influence someone else. Those would all be examples of an honor check. I really like this. I think I need to add this to some games I have coming up, hopefully in the future as things spread out with COVID. I think this could add a lot to a game. Especially, like I'm saying, if you have a lot of political intrigue, if you have religious orders or chivalric orders or even wizard schools, having that reputation within the school amongst the wizards so that they know which wizards their word is respected and which ones are seen as kooks and madmen and just completely disregarded out of hand. And you have to make sure that the people that you're associating yourself with have the higher reputation so as to not handicap yourself whenever you're interacting with the other members of the school. Yeah, I could see that. It would be a slight modification on this, but it would translate one-to-one almost seamlessly. So when you're making saving throws with your honor, the examples that they give for that are avoiding an accidental breach of honor or etiquette, resisting the urge to respond to goading or insults from an enemy, and recognizing when an enemy attempts to trick you into a breach of honor. So the saves are all your attempts to keep from diminishing your honor score because you don't get to improve your honor score like you do any of your other stats. You can't buy into it. You can't magically restore it. It is all purely based on your social interaction. So if you do honorable things, you get awarded honor points and your honor goes up. If you do dishonorable things, you get penalized for it and your honor score goes down. There is no royal road to dignity. And it's like every other score in the game. It's between 1 and 20. You can't go below 1. You can't go above 20. And then the other part of this whole section is sanity. Sanity would be for any of your horror-themed games. You know, if you're wanting to get a Call of Cthulhu feel into your D&D, this is where you would put it in. If you wanted to have sort of an existential dread sort of thing, this is where you put it in. If you want to have outsiders coming from the far realms and just really mind warping everything this is what you put in so if you're having a game where you have a bunch of aboleths and mind flayers or things that are coming from pandemonium the plane of chaos these are all the things that would need you to have sanity scores if you're having a lot of interplanar travel that would be a nice one because one of the things that they have for a sanity saving throw is you pass through a demiplane with alien physics. So where up is no longer up. This is definitely like, these are the ones you want to break out around Halloween. Yeah, this is where you'd have to be really creative as a DM, but your options are near limitless. I don't do horror. I don't really enjoy the genre. I don't like being scared. So I probably wouldn't use this particular mechanic myself, at least not like that. But you can actually get a whole lot of mind warping going on without having any horror elements at all. Just having it being really weird. Right, and that's an option. One thing out of this I do like, though, and again, I'm not a huge horror fan myself. I do prefer like psychological horror, preferably. Something along the lines of like the Alien franchise are great. And as far as good horror games goes, if you ever get a chance to play Alien Isolation, just the atmosphere they built in that game is amazing. But I do like the fear and horror stats. And one thing I actually, a homebrew I do in my game, is that if a character is dropped by a race or a species, dropped to zero more than twice within a certain amount of time, I will give them a stat where they become afraid of that species, so they start taking disadvantage on their attacking rolls. And then that lasts so many long rests or until they can actually do some sort of heroic act that gets them past that. But you can start taking little bits of those, like I said, the horror the frightened there's different stats that you can start kind of putting in to add a little flavor to your game as well the examples that they're giving in the book for things that would require sanity checks there are things that would typically require an intelligence check so deciphering a piece of text written in a language so alien that it threatens to break the character's mind so anything that has anything that you would find that cultists write in Call of Cthulhu, those are the sorts of things that you have to roll a sanity check for. Even if you read something in Infernal or Abyssal, 
or possibly even Draconic, honestly. But those would be good options. I would almost say that you would be immune to having to do it on Draconic if you had proficiency in Arcana, because Arcane Magic uses Draconic script. So that would be how I would hand wave that one, personally. Overcoming the lingering effects of madness which we're going to get to in a little bit, or comprehending a piece of alien magic foreign to all normal understanding of magic. This is one where you can actually start introducing things like modern real-world technology into the game, stuff that runs on electricity that's not actually magical, that's just technological, and someone who lives in a world based on magic trying to figure out how something that appears to be running through magic, is working without magic. This is what Arthur Weasley do. Yeah, this is kind of what Arthur Weasley would do. His job was to analyze muggle technology and figure out how it worked. So he had a high sanity score, apparently. Which you wouldn't think by the way you look at him, but then depending on how often he would have to roll one of these checks, it kind of stands to reason. I like it. New headcanon. I think Molly Weasley is Arthur Weasley's sanity score. Probably. The other saving throws that are in here that I really like is resisting the after effects of a spell that causes psychic damage. I think that's actually a really good time to throw in Oh yeah. some sort of sanity check. That's a wonderful, wonderful time. So like your antipathy, sympathy, or your... I mean, even just being actually affected by an enchantment spell... Yeah, I was going to say would, enchantment or illusion spells, absolutely. You know, like a dominate spell, or a suggestion spell, or a charm spell. And then, you know, under that enchantment, you are made to do something that you wouldn't normally do. You would have to roll a sanity check to rationalize that cognitive dissonance once the spell wore off. I like that. And again, that gets really deep. Depending on how you want to play and your player at the table, again, can be as lighthearted or as deep or as dark as you want it to be. If you just want to play with fluffy bunnies, that's perfectly acceptable. And if you want to handle things like PTSD or the meaning of life and the universe and everything, that's also up to the DM and the table as well. Yeah. So some of the other ones that are in this list, seeing a creature from the far realms or other alien realms for the first time. So I would even go so far as to say something like a gibbering mouther, which is kind of like an ooze that's all eyes and mouths and writhing flesh and is absolutely terrifying, even though it's like a CR2 or 3 monster. I would even make you make a sanity saving throw against that. Yeah, you know, the classic watcher, again, would be another one of those. If you get stuck in the area of effect of, what is it, one of the warlock spells. Hunger of Hadar. You open a gateway to the dark between the stars, a region infested with unknown horrors. A 20-foot radius sphere of blackness and bitter cold appears centered on a point in range and lasting for the duration. This void is filled with a cacophony of soft whispers and slurping noises that can be heard up to 30 feet away. No light, magical or otherwise, can illuminate the area, and creatures within the area are blinded. The void creates a warp in the fabric of space, and the area is difficult terrain. Any creature that starts its turn in the area takes 2d6 cold damage. Any creature that ends its turn in the area must succeed on a dexterity saving throw, or take 2d6 acid damage as milky, otherworldly tentacles rub against it. Oh my. Yeah. You do summon hentai. It really is summon hentai. So, Hunger of Hadar would be one of those spells where if you get caught in it, you have to make a sanity check. Absolutely. Yeah, you would have to make a sanity save and throw after something like that. And also make direct contact with the mind of an alien creature. So if you end up having a psionic brain probe from a mind flayer, that would do it, or from an abolith. I mean, anything that just is not from the material plane picking around in your gray matter would probably prompt a sanity saving throw, at least at my table. Very likely, yes. Of course, the last little bit in the sanity section says that failed sanity save might result in short-term, long-term, or indefinite madness, which is what we're going to get ready to talk about. How about that? And then, if you suffer from any long-term or indefinite madness, your sanity score is reduced by one, a greater restoration spell can restore it, 
and you can increase your sanity through level advancement. You can spend your ASIs to bump up your sanity score. Now, Wizards does include some madness tables in their book, and that's fine. This does get into a bit of a tender area, particularly as we've mentioned before, there's a lot more advocacy, which is great for disabilities and different things. Mental disability, mental illness is a thing. If you do choose to deal or cope with madness at your table, please be mindful of the players at your table, be mindful of your audience, as it were, who you're dealing with. If you've got five or six people at the table, including yourself, I can almost guarantee that someone at the table is dealing with something. So again, be mindful. Don't be brash. Don't be callous about it. Some of the things they cover in here, probably a little outdated, even from the time that fifth edition was put out. So again, don't point and mock talking about hearing sounds or voices or illusions or schizophrenia or different things. There are people that really deal with these issues. They are very real things. They're not always something you can point and laugh at. That being said, if handled correctly, they can add a bit to the game. If the character chooses to play that correctly, can add a lot to the game. But be mindful, again, these are real issues. Yes, absolutely. Going back to what we were talking about in our cultural appropriation episode, be respectful with what you are drawing from. Try not to reinforce negative stereotypes. Try not to go into caricatures, especially with mental illness. Don't just go into a caricature of a mental illness. If you're going to portray a mental illness, make sure that you understand the gravity of what you're trying to get into before you even attempt it. And honestly, if you want to cover mental illness in your sessions, that might be something you bring up in a zero session, or if it's something that you've come across mid-session, discuss with your party beforehand, because some people might be more sensitive to things like that. Maybe it's a little too close to home for them. Maybe it is, maybe it's not, but at least bring it up and make sure everyone at the table is okay with it. And make it very known that if they're not okay with it, that's fine. And it's not paramount to any game. These rules are meant to be adjusted. They can be played fast and loose. But at the end of the day, it's a game. Everyone should be having fun. Nobody should be put on a spotlight. Nobody should be made uncomfortable. And if someone says that they're uncomfortable, you stop. You just stop. They don't have to have a reason for it. They don't have to explain it. If it's making them uncomfortable and they say that they're uncomfortable, you stop. I was listening to an interview with Jeremy Crawford, the lead rules guy for D&D. He was talking about he has a card that he lays in the middle of his table, especially whenever he's playing at a con or with people that he doesn't know really well. And so they don't even have to say anything. If the game is shifting in a direction that someone feels uncomfortable with, they just reach out and touch the card. And that's all the sign that they need. You just stop and you go on. That's actually a really great rule. So yeah, it's really important to make sure that you're not alienating the people at your table. Because presumably they're your friends. Or people who you would want to be your friends. And you don't want to upset your friends. Anyway, let's That said, let's look at these tables. <laughs> let's look at these tables. So it does give basic framework for dealing with short-term, long-term, indefinite madness. Short-term madness lasts for 1d10 minutes. Long-term madness is 1d10 times 10 hours. And indefinite madness is until you cure it. And so most of these short-term madnesses aren't too bad, I don't think. There are a lot of status effects, which is fine. They kind of go into a simple fight or flight, largely. These aren't anything too tricky to deal with. The short-term madnesses are fairly usable, I think, without tripping over too many landmines. It definitely has a lot of feel of, to use an outdated term, shell shock. A lot of yes. sudden mental system shock, and the brain just can't process all of the stimuli coming in and it just shuts down you know so you so have I, catatonia you have fleeing and fear you know you have you fall unconscious so to run down this list real quick you've got paralyzed as an effect that's a 1 to 20 uh, 21 to 30 is incapacitated 31 to 40 is frightened 41 to 50 you start babbling so you can't use speech or spell casting that's a bit flavorful, but understandable. 50 to 51, you use your reaction to attack the nearest creature. Again, that's just a simple fight or flight. 60 to 70, character experiences vivid hallucinations and has disadvantage on ability checks. 
Uh, that one's a bit peculiar, but okay. That's still workable. 71 to 75, character does what anyone tells them to. That isn't obviously self-destructive. Again, that one's kind of playable, but again, if you're just kind of shaken, I've seen people take that state, you know, just if they're completely just rattled. 76 to 80, a character experiences an overpowering urge to eat something strange. This becomes Pika, which is a thing. I would probably kind of skip over this one personally. That would be a harder one to do. Pika is a thing. People that have it, it's a hard thing. It can be a challenge. That one's a little wonky too. 81 to 90, the character's stunned. Again, just a simple status effect. 91 to 100, the character's unconscious. And again, that's just an Azrael status effect. And if you want to see examples of most of these, watch the Storming the Beaches sequence from Saving Private Ryan. Because you will see almost all of these. Absolutely. And that was a very vivid, but a very well done scene. If you have trouble with blood or with graphic violence, probably don't. I will reel that back in for a little bit. But if you can handle those sorts of graphic depictions, you can see most of these short-term madness, what they've got on this table displayed at some point or another within that opening sequence in that movie. The one that's standing out to me is the guy who had his arm blown off and you just see him wander on the beach and then just go and just casually pick his arm up off of the beach and he's just walking around. That's basically what one of these would be. Right. And again, these all are indicative of a severe sudden mental trauma of one form or another. And again... Not something that would happen lightly or easily. So your long-term madness table, these get a bit more touchy. Again, they can be worked. Some of them are status effects. Some of these start brushing up against some stereotypical mental illness. So again, depending on how your players want to handle these, these are various options. A 1 to 10, the character feels compelled to repeat a specific activity over and over again. Again, this kind of brushes up against OCD and not like... I have to have everything organized and clean. That's not OCD, but there are certain fixations or certain repeated patterns. That's real OCD, you know, versus, again, stereotypical OCD. 11 to 20, the character experiences vivid hallucinations, has disadvantage on ability checks. Again, your hallucinations, you're going to start brushing up against things like schizophrenia or things like that. This one, not calling a name to anything, so just they're experiencing hallucinations. You can decide what that is, but, again, be aware that People do deal with this from time to time. 21 to 30, the character suffers from extreme paranoia. The character has disadvantage on wisdom and charisma checks. Paranoia, again, gets a certain feel, has a certain stage presence that people think. It's not always everyone's after me. It can be more subtle than that. Real issues tend to be a a lot more subtle. Yeah, 31 to 40 is character regards something, usually the source of madness with intense revulsion, as if affected by the antipathy effect of the antipathy-sympathy spell. So I would actually almost do that the other way personally i would almost have it inflict sympathy towards the source of the madness yeah i mean that's a possibility and again that's a dm call and that is one thing with spell effects or status effects they are a lot easier to play with so depending on how the madness quote quote affects the player either one antipathy or sympathy either way could work thinking kind of like the angler fish kind of metaphor with that one you know they're drawn inexplicably to whatever it is and you see this all of the time in lovecraftian sort of stories where the person gets a hold of the artifact and the artifact slowly drives them mad and they get more and more possessive of the artifact the more and more they descend into madness right another good example of this would touching back on blizzard because we come from a very firm blizzard background but frostmourne and arthas was obviously a cursed item that was driving him mad because it was attached to the Lich King. And the more he had it, the more he relied upon it, and the more he bonded with the weapon. So 41 to 45, the character experiences a powerful delusion. Choose a potion. The character imagines that he or she is under its effects. I mean, that could be any of a number of things. It could be something like Featherfall, which could be quite detrimental. Or it could be something like Giant Strength, so that they just think that they're stronger than they are. It could run the gamut from catastrophically dangerous to your health to comical, depending on how you chose to implement it. 
Absolutely. And again, that's a table one. That one, I don't think is too bad either. That actually has a lot of fun potential. I could even do that short term and it'd be kind of fun. 46 to 55, the character becomes attached to a lucky charm, such as a person or an object, and has disadvantage on attack rolls, ability checks, and saving throws while more than 30 feet from it. Yeah, this is taking superstition too far. Your Linus with his blanket. 56 to 65, the character has a 25% chance of being blinded or a 75% chance of being deafened. Again, status effects, which aren't a terrible thing. If you're playing as a blind or deaf character, again, be mindful. These are real conditions, so don't become a stereotype. Don't become a character. And this is actually a medical possibility. There are people who have undergone mental trauma that one of their senses just stops working for a while. You saw that in a lot of accounts from World War II. Again, this tends to fall under the old term shell shock. This is actually covered in one of the episodes of Band of Brothers, where I think it was after the Battle of Bastogne or the Battle of the Bulge. One of the characters lost his vision for a while, and he's in a hospital, and it's like, they're checking him out, and there's nothing wrong with him, but he can't see. So you're 66 to 75, and the character experiences uncontrollable tremors or ticks, which impose disadvantage on attack rolls, ability checks, and saving throws that involve strength or dexterity. I'm assuming that means that they're trying to give them epilepsy? Or the shakes. I mean, there's a lot of movement disorder. This one kind of strikes close to home with my Tourette's because I do have movement disorder with the Tourette's. So again, I do have the physical tics as well. And again, depending on how you want to play with it. But yeah, you can kind of have either epilepsy or just general like the tremors or the shakes are a thing. Even earlier this week, Ian had sent me a video of a gentleman with Tourette's that was trying to cook. And Ian's known me for quite some time. And he knows what my tics look like. And even he was surprised by the severity of this person's tics. And Ian had said, even before that, I thought they were mainly vocal because that's how things like that are presented. So again, that's one of those things where if you're going to deal with this, again, be mindful. But again, that's also, if you've seen people with tremors are so scared that they physically shake, that is very much a thing. 76 to 85, the character suffers from partial amnesia. Character knows who he or she is and retains racial traits and class features, but doesn't recognize other people or remember anything that happened before the madness took effect. Amnesia is, of course, an actual medical condition. It usually happens as a result of violent brain trauma. So you'll end up having it after, say, car crashes and things of that nature. I actually did a little bit of research into amnesia a while back for a short story I was trying to write, and I had decided to scrap the story because my story was playing into the Hollywood stereotypical amnesia as opposed to actual medical amnesia, and I decided that I wasn't wanting to perpetuate that. Right. Medical amnesia does happen, but it's not like your soap opera amnesia by any stretch. It is not 51st dates. I have yet to find actual medical documentation suggesting that the type of amnesia that is present in Drew Barrymore's character in 51st dates is actually a real form of amnesia. I could be wrong if I am. Send me the literature so I can educate myself. Continuing on, 86 to 90, whenever a character takes damage, he or she must succeed on a DC 15 wisdom saving throw or be affected as though he or she failed the saving throw against the confusion spell. Confusion spell lasts for one minute. I'm okay with this one. Again, this is just a simple status effect. And I mean, if you're easily rattled for whatever reason, I can kind of see this one without stepping on too many toes, I don't think. This one has less baggage than some of the other ones. 91 to 95, the character loses the ability to speak. And 96 to 100, character falls unconscious. No amount of jostling or damage can wake them. So they become comatose. Again, that happens. I think that we could be just kind of pass out or whatever. That's fine without. Again, you're not stepping on too many toes with that one. So the last table is the indefinite madness table, and there's a lot of stuff here. And all of this is broken down into phrases because you gain a flaw until you cure it. Right. And again, these can get really tricky really fast. So if you want to play these, again, they can make for an interesting table. But again, please be mindful of those at your table. Right. So 1 to 15 is being drunk keeps me sane. Be careful. Playing with alcoholism at your table, guys. Don't go into substance abuse lightly. There are a lot of people who have trouble with substance abuse. I keep whatever I find. It's 16 to 25. Yeah. Kleptomania is, again, that one's a little easier to, to work with. It kind of sucks. It happens. I actually didn't read that as kleptomania. I read that as hoarding. I could see that as well, yeah. 
You know, you hang on to everything, even completely useless things, because at some point you had a scarcity and that tripped something in your brain. And so now you can't get rid of anything because you might need it. Yeah, I can see that. And again, depending on how you want to portray that, it could go either way. That one's a little easier to work with. 26 to 30, I think this one actually could be interesting. I don't think this one crosses any lines really, but I try to become more like someone else I know, adopting his or her style of dress, mannerisms, or name. That one could be interesting, and I don't think that one steps on too many toes. I don't know if that brushes up against anything. But that one, depending on how you want to play that one, that one could be fairly interesting to do. 31 to 35, I must bend the truth, exaggerate, or outright lie to be interesting to other people. Yeah, that's pathological lying, and I think as long as you don't say, well, I'm doing this because I have XYZ issue, or just play it on the table, I think that's okay. 36 to 45, achieving my goal is the only thing of interest to me, and I'll ignore everything else to pursue it. Yeah, that's just playing a lawful good paladin. Or a neutral evil. I'm okay with this one. (laughs) Yeah. 46 to 50, I find it hard to care about anything that goes on around me. That's true neutral. That is a poorly played true neutral, but yes. That is stereotypical true neutral of I don't care. It is Uh, ennui. 51 to 55, I don't like the way people judge me all the time. That's every character that James has ever created. I have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) That's right. They are more self-confident than that. That's right. 56 to 70, I'm the smartest, wisest, strongest, fastest, and most beautiful person I know. That's most of the characters I play. Your character has become the leader of North Korea. Absolutely. It's best Korea. Thank you very much. 71 to 80. I am convinced that powerful enemies are hunting me and their agents are everywhere I go. I am sure that they are watching over me all the time. This is an upgrade of the paranoia from the long term. Right. And again, this, if played well, can be done quite well. Play it like this with these terms. Try not to label your character with a specific affliction. 81 to 85. There's only one person I can trust and only I could see the special friend. Okay, that's fine. Again, you're getting a Donnie Darko type thing. You're brushing up with things like schizophrenia. I think a really good movie that conveyed some of the issues with schizophrenia was uh, A Beautiful Mind with Russell Crowe way back when. Again, be gentle with this one. If you want to play it this way, that's fine. Try not to label your character. Again, this one can be tricky. 86 to 95, I can't take anything seriously. The more serious the situation, the funnier I find it. This is most people at a D&D table. It really is. And then 96 to 100, I've discovered that I really like killing people. That's everyone else at the D&D table. Yeah, I mean, you're just a band of murder hobos. So that one's not too terribly far out of reach. But again, that's the tables that 5e has given. If you're going to play a game of mental illness again, be mindful. You can have fun with something. We're not saying you can't have fun. We're not saying you can't do it. Again, just be mindful of the people at your table and how you're using these issues or how you're portraying these issues because you'd be surprised if you don't really, really, really know everyone at the table. You'd be surprised with what people deal with at home and what they may or may not feel comfortable speaking about. And just to touch a little bit on curing madness, because they do give guidelines for that. Calm emotions can suppress the effects of a madness. Lesser restoration can get rid of short-term or long-term But in indefinite madness, you have to use something like a remove curse or dispel evil if it has a discernible source or something like greater restoration or a higher level spell will actually cure that, which is pretty straightforward, actually. So that wraps up our social interaction episode, I think. I believe next week we're going to delve into a bit more of the uh, magic and spellcrafting aspects, some magic items. Yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about sentient magic items spell crafting and because we actually got some fan feedback uh, we're going to talk about spell points so using spell points as opposed to spell slots which is a really fun and interesting way that work your things it's actually having a proper mana pool like you'd see in most video games versus tabletop games thank you everybody for joining us if you liked what you heard please let us know send us an email under taste at gmail.com follow us on twitter at uct homebrew We're also on Facebook and Instagram at Undercommon Taste. I'm still doing roleplay prompts based off of my Shakespearean Insult page-a-day calendar. They're going up six days a week. They go up on the Twitter account, so come take a look at them and let us know if you make anything good out of them. As always, you can find our podcast where you find your favorite podcasts. We're pretty much everywhere now. Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify. Subscribe and rate our podcast for us. Thank you. And that should do it. See you next week. Thank you for joining us for the Undercommon Taste podcast. If you enjoyed it, please pass it along to your friends. You can find our past episodes hosted on Podbean and available through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, 
and Amazon Music. New episodes go live on Wednesdays, and the write-ups for our homebrewed content are published on Fridays. Join us on Facebook or Instagram at Undercommon Taste, or on Twitter under the handle at UCT Homebrew. Links to all of our content can be found on these platforms. If you have comments, corrections, suggestions, or ideas, please send them to us at undercommontaste at gmail.com. If we like your idea, it may make it into a future episode. Our theme music is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. You can find Mary online at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmarycrowell. Again, thank you for listening and stay safe. You'll hear from us again soon.